In the second half of the 1800s, the use of and addiction to opium increased dramatically in China. Now, the British imported opium into China through Chinese middlemen drug lords. Um, the, the, the middlemen, the, the drug lords had to pay the British in silver, and the British desperately needed the silver to run their empire, to pay for their navy, to pay for their empire upon which the sun never set. Around 1840, and again in 1857, when the Chinese government tried to stop the British from importing opium, war broke out. The British won, and they forced these lucrative trade agreements on the Chinese that allowed the British to keep their opium trade going through the drug lord middlemen. Now, estimates vary, but by 1890, 10% of the Chinese population were used or addicted to opium. Now, the population at that point was 450 million, so 45 million Chinese were overusing opium. And this destroyed millions of Chinese lives, made tons of money for the British Empire, and also supported and protected and made money for criminal drug lord middlemen. Now, this is the same time when famous missionary Hudson Taylor became a missionary in China where he served for 51 years, 51 years. We were 17 years in Brazil. While most missionaries kept their European garb and manners and stayed on the coasts of China and ate European food, Hudson Taylor started a mission where they went inland. He dressed like the Chinese. He spoke Chinese. He had his hair in a queue. He ate what the Chinese ate. And God did amazing things. And they lived by faith. They would often come to the end of their financial resources and pray, only to find that a letter with money in it had been sent to them months earlier from England. And they had food again. So while Hudson Taylor's missionaries and their families lived simply and sometimes didn't know where their next meal was coming from, the drug lords, protected by the British gunboats, lived expensively, did awful things, lived like kings. Now, because he became a missionary, a lot of things happened to Hudson Taylor. Given the conditions, eight of his 13 children died. His first wife, Maria, died of cholera. Twice, Hudson Taylor almost died in typhoons. Once, he was on a riverboat. He fell. He was paralyzed. He eventually got better, but they didn't know for some time. And then during the Boxer Rebellion in 1900, now the Boxer Rebellion, the Chinese populace, they were upset at the influence of these foreigners, understandably, and it became a violent rebellion in which they tried to violently expel all the foreigners from China, and 58 of the missionaries working for Hudson Taylor were murdered, and 21 of their children. While the drug lords prospered, Hudson Taylor went through all of this. And 
So how did all this injustice, all this pain, all this suffering impact Hudson Taylor? How, how would it impact you, do you think? Uh, have you ever been really, really good while somebody who was really, really bad prospered? Now, before I tell you the rest of Hudson Taylor's story, I want us to look at Psalm 73, where, in which the author Asaph describes a very similar situation 3,000 years ago as he watched with bitterness as wicked people prospered while he got clobbered. Let's read the first part, and we'll take it in sections. Psalm 73. Truly God is good to the upright, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had well nigh slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs. Their bodies are sound and sleek. They are not in trouble as other men are. They are not stricken like other men. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out with fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, the people turn and praise them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and chastened every morning. Now, in the ancient world in which Asaph wrote this psalm, people tended to suffer a lot. We, we, we often don't realize. By examining human remains in ancient cemeteries, forensic, forensic pathologists have discovered that almost anyone who lived past the age of 30 either had parasites or had some kind of a bone that had been broken and set poorly or some other ailment that they probably either limped or were in constant pain or something like that. It was difficult. In addition, in the ancient world, I know we're familiar with COVID, but in the ancient world, every so many years, plagues would come through. And the weather would change and there would be famine. So everybody over 30, they'd seen people starve to death. They'd seen people die of sickness. And we often forget that on average, one half of their children died before age 10. Can you imagine that? And if their sons lived longer, then sometimes they were conscripted into the king's army to go fight for him. King David, in the day of Azafi, he had a lot of war, so conscripted a lot of young men, so a lot of young men died. And don't forget that more than 80% of the population, up until well into the Industrial Revolution, at least 80% of every country lived on a farm, scratching out an existence in the dirt without the pesticides we have, without the irrigation we have, without the seeds that produce so much, without the equipment that we have. And sometimes there would be locusts or bad weather, and to stop from starving, to keep from starving, they would have to sell themselves or some of their children 
into slavery. And then finally, in almost every kingdom and civilization of the world, in the ancient world, corruption was rampant. And if you've ever lived in a corrupt country, which I have, um, it just makes the bad people rise to power with bribes and violence and threatening. So most people in Azaf's time when he wrote this psalm, they, they would have identified with what he's saying about bad people getting ahead while good people get slammed. And remember, this is the ancient world into which Jesus came to fix it. Do you identify with any of this? Do you think about people who lie and and cheat and become wealthy? Do you know people who, who don't obey God in their sex lives, but they seem like they're happy and everything's going great? Have you suffered or watched others suffer? In a crowd like this, we are bound to have people who were abused emotionally or sexually as children. A lot of us can still remember being bullied growing up, and the bullies never seemed to get what they had coming, did they? Psalm 73 is describing feeling frustrated and angry because life is not fair and good people often get clobbered while bad people get ahead. Have you ever felt that way? You ever had that inside of you? Maybe you refused to fudge on the truth at work so you didn't get a promotion or maybe even got fired. Maybe you give 10% of your earnings to God, and now you got fired? Maybe someone broke up with you because you wouldn't have sex with them before marriage, but they went off and found somebody who wouldn't. They seem happy. They even go to church someplace. Maybe you raised your kids doing everything you can, could and sacrificing, and they've grown up and just made a mess of their lives and yours. You've tried to do the, whole, the right thing all your life, and now you or someone you love dearly has cancer or dementia while some bad people you know, they retired early and they're traveling the world. Or maybe your life is fine, but you just can't see how a good and powerful God would allow the suffering going on in wars like in the Ukraine. You see, all of these things make God angrier than they make you, believe it or not. Because God loves everyone, and just like when you see someone you love getting clobbered, it makes you angry. It makes God angry to see what's going on in the world. And the psalmist is going to address this. What is going on? He's going to to talk about some of this. So let's look at the next section, verse 15. He says, the psalmist says to himself, If I had said, I will speak thus, meaning, you know, I'm getting clobbered, it's not worth being good, I would have been untrue to the generation of thy children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Truly thou dost set them in slippery places, thou dost make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment swept away utterly by by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. On awaking, you despise their phantoms." Azaf is realizing, first of all, that his bitterness and lack of trust in God had the potential of leading others astray. If I said, I will speak, thus I would have been untrue to a generation of thy children. He could have led everybody astray. Now, we have famous people today 
who are leading whole generations astray. Uh, think, for example, of um, famous atheist Richard Dawkins. He, he writes, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe is precise, has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. That's a brilliant man who perhaps means well his understanding of how good people could get clobbered while bad people get ahead and all the other things he sees. See, we, we as a society, as a culture, we have become very poor at processing the suffering of this world. Tim Keller has an excellent book, Making Sense of God, where he writes, Western societies are perhaps the worst societies in the history of the world at preparing people for suffering and death. We tend to become like Asaph. Without as much suffering as the ancient world had, we still tend to say, oh, it's just not worth following Jesus. Now, although Asaph has been struggling to understand all of these difficulties in life, in the passage we just read, he does say that he realizes that evil people are in a precarious situation. He says, thou dost make them fall to ruin, how they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. He knows that although we don't always see it, something bad can happen. And we've, we sometimes see it, you know, the drug dealer winds up dead, the cheating husband ends up alone, the tax uh, cheater goes to, to prison. It doesn't always, but sometimes. But at the end of the psalm, Asaph is going to fi finally realize that nobody's really getting away from, with anything. He's going to say, all those who are far from God will perish. So he's getting there, and, and he's realizing this in God's presence. So let's see after that how his thoughts develop. Now, he's not going to resolve all of our issues with this. There's a lot of mystery here. And especially when you are in the middle of pain and you're just, oh, how can this awful thing be happening to me? Look at him. He's awful and good things are happening to him. But I want to tell you, the reason I picked this psalm is that he's now going to give us some tremendous insights. And the rest of this psalm is perhaps some of the most beautiful words ever put together in human history. Psalm 73, verse 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Um, it's show and tell time. I, I've recently gotten to spend time with all seven of my grandchildren in different places, and I'm always struck by how the slightest thing will have them just kind of melt down and start weeping and gnashing their teeth. And... Um, <laughs> Inconsolably. And, and here, one, one instance, these are, are um, we play a game called Forbidden Island. And these are the four plastic fake treasures that go in the game. And it's actually not a competitive game. It's a game where you're working together to get all the treasures together and get off the island before the island sinks. Okay? <laughs> and this happened this week, actually. So, you know, so... 
One of the children, when we rescued a treasure, grabbed the treasure, which means they were, they were going to temporarily get to hold a fake treasure. And another one just melted down. That is just not fair. I get, it's my turn to hold the treasure. And they just grew inconsolable and, and crying. And the treasure belongs to the whole team. It's not competitive. It's only going to be for a few minutes till the game is over. But the unfairness brought weeping and wailing. I've always, I'm always struck, because I raised our five kids many years ago, I'm always struck at how so much of being a little kid is learning how to manage our emotions. It's so good that we who are adults never get upset about someone else <laughs> temporarily holding a fake treasure. <laughs> Tesla. <laughs> see, we fail to see the big picture, what God is doing. Um, and we become brutish toward God because someone else gets to hold the treasure temporarily. See, when we're suffering or we're observing someone suffer that we, we, we love, uh, or some really bad person's getting ahead, you know, sometimes we allow ourselves to doubt God's goodness. Uh, we become pricked in our heart, embittered. And instead of gaining understanding, we kind of act and react and emotionally go off the rails as if we were ignorant of just how good God is, as if we were ignorant of how much God has suffered in order to win us, as if we were ignorant of how patient God is with each and every one of us. We become brutish toward the God who has proven his love for us over and over. Verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Now, if you've turned your life over to Jesus, even when you're acting ignorant and foolish and brutish and upset and bitter, he holds tightly to your hand. Even in your worst moments, God has you, won't let you go. I get to you know, do things with my grandkids and, and some of them are very little, and so we're just like all of you, and we're going to cross the street. We say, okay, what do we do? First of all, we hold hands, then we look both ways, and then we start walking across the street. Now, sometimes, you know, they, oh, I want to go a different way, and they try and pull away. Uh-uh. I got them. I'm bigger, I'm more powerful, and I am determined I am getting them to the other side of the street. And that's what God does with you and with me. Jesus writes, my sheep hear my voice, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I know you because you're like me, and we all struggle. And we have times when we disagree with how God is, is allowing our lives to go, is managing our lives. But even when we doubt God's goodness, like in this psalm, he didn't let go of our hand. He's got us. The first part of verse 24, 
You guide me with your counsel. Notice it's when Azaf goes into the sanctuary, into God's presence, that he kind of start, begins to get a clue of some of the things God is going, that are going on. Not everything, but some of the things, some helpful things. And, and this is true of us. God wants to guide you with his counsel through the scriptures, through your fellowship and your small group, and just through the nudging and even speaking of the Holy Spirit. And then the second part of that verse, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Now the Old Testament is not as full of references to heaven and going to God's glory as the New Testament, but this is one of the really clear places. And it's true that we all suffer in life, and life is often unfair, disappointing, and painful, but the Apostle Paul writes, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Now, Asaph didn't have a lot of the information you have. He didn't really understand how God was going to become human and take on the sufferings that we deserve, that he was going to live the perfect life we all fail to live, die the death we deserve in our place so that we could be forgiven, adopted into God's family, and inherit the universe with Jesus. But he knew he was going to be received into God's glory. Pretty amazing. And then the part I'm hoping you might even think about memorizing. Verse 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He, does, he, he doesn't mean he, there's nothing else he desires. He, he, he still, you know, he, he wants justice. He wants his children to live. He doesn't want his friends to die of the plague or of starvation. But he's using hyperbole, over-exaggerating, uh, overstating, to make it crystal clear that he wants a relationship with God more than anything else. And this is the rallying cry. This is the slogan of followers of Jesus. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And, and I, know, I know you're Presbyterians, but I'm going to ask you to do something uncomfortable. I want you just to repeat each phrase after me, will you? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I encourage you to memorize that verse this week and even repeat it every day, put a reminder on your phone, do whatever works for you. What's the greatest treasure that exists? What do you value more? Do you value um, your loved ones or, or your money? Do you value your loved ones or, or, or your job? Do you value your loved ones or your, your house or your car? Do you value your loved ones or your success? Well, probably everyone in this room would say, I, I'd sacrifice any one of those things for my loved ones. Jesus actually did sacrifice everything and suffer in the place of his loved ones. That, that's you. That's you. And, and when we get to heaven, we are going to see God face to face. We're, we're going to be overwhelmed and enthralled by his glory. By, by, it's just going to emanate from him his power and his, his beauty and his goodness and his love for you. And we will immediately realize that knowing him, knowing Jesus, a relationship with him, with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is worth far more 
than any of the, 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 the temporary treasures that we just get so upset about. God himself, God himself is the greatest, most valuable treasure. Jesus put it like this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. God himself is that treasure. Now, Hudson Taylor, missionary in China, he knew all of that. And when the drug lords were prospering and Hudson Taylor lost eight of his 13 children, almost died twice, was paralyzed for some time, and then lost 58 of his missionaries and 21 of their children in the Boxer Rebellion. But when the Chinese government offered compensation, he gained more respect for Jesus among the Chinese by saying, no, it's part of what it means to follow Jesus. And when he was asked how he dealt with all the pressure he was under as a missionary, he said, it does not matter how great the pressure is. What really matters is where the pressure lies, whether it comes between you and God or whether it presses you nearer his heart. And although it must have been hard to see drug lords prosper, his suffering developed character, Christ-likeness in Hudson Taylor, and it helped him experience more of the love of, love of God. Now, later on in 1949, the communists would begin and, and eventually expel almost all of the Western missionaries from China, and they would put the leaders of the Christian churches in uh, concentration camps, and they, they suffered horribly, but they became firmer, put their roots down, and they came out, and God used them in the decades that followed to have one of the largest, fastest expansions of Christianity in the history of the world, so that today, most experts would estimate that at least 100 million Chinese are followers of Jesus, over 7% of the population. And some of that is because of Hudson Taylor. What is a gold digger? What is a trophy wife? A gold digger is someone who marries somebody for their money. A trophy wife is someone who gets married because of her good looks, not for who she is. What is the first and greatest commandment according to Jesus? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. See, what God does, what he did for me when I was an atheist and got a hold of me. He, 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 he meets us at some point in which we say, I need help. And he woos and wins our hearts. And so we come and we, we love him back, but we often, at least initially, it's for what he does for us, forgiveness or purpose or victory over some addiction. But just like you, and you're created in his image, God wants to be loved for who he is, not just for what he does for you. And the older I get, the more I realize that during too much of my life, my focus has, has been on me, on, on my performance as a follower of Jesus, or even my transformation to become more like Jesus, or ministry results, all of these, and, and none of that is, is bad. But it often has kept me from focusing on the main thing, 
loving God for who he is. You know, he plans to show you his glory, his power, his beauty, his goodness, his love, and you're going to be overwhelmed. You're going to love him for who he is. So don't wait. Start now. Every day, just spend some time amazed, in awe of God's beauty and goodness and love. And and that will bring joy to the heart of God. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, those who are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast put an end to those who are false to thee. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I might tell of all thy works. May God be your portion forever. May you truly consider God himself to be the greatest treasure of the universe. Amen.